This week, uh, this week coming, we have Thanksgiving. Uh, I love Thanksgiving, uh, not just because of the food. I, I love Thanksgiving. One of my favorite things about Thanksgiving is that it's so predictable. Thanksgiving seems to be the same thing every year in my family, and it's a lot of fun to kind of sit back and watch. Because generally, the way that Thanksgiving plays out, right? You show up to your grandma's house, your aunt's house, whoever's house that you're going to, to eat the meal at this week, this, this week right? The men kind of go one way and the women go the other. When the men go their way, usually wherever the men meet, there's a TV. It's got a Lions game that no one cares about playing on it, right? I'm going to watch them lose, don't worry, it's not a big deal. As we're sitting there talking, everybody starts sharing their scouting reports, how LSU's looking, what about that game that you saw, did you see that highlight, what about the Saints tonight against the Falcons, they're going to win, right? All of those kind of things, the men start to share their stuff, and after a few minutes, they start either talking about the recent hunt, <laughs> the last fishing trip, right? Everybody's kind of got their stories, their things lined up until we get to the same old stories again and again and again that are going to show up every Thanksgiving. The women tend to go and, and they're all in a circle somewhere, whether it be a living room or a kitchen or something like that. They're all kind of sitting around talking by the table or whatever. They're all sharing, might be enjoying a glass of wine or something. The best thing that you can possibly have happen at Thanksgiving is that one of the grandkids or cousins brings a new girlfriend or boyfriend because that is going to be the conversation at the table of the women. Is this, one, is this one worthy to join our clan or not? If this one can survive this, they're they probably going to be good, right? Like, this is just, it, it seems to be very predictable. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know exactly who's going to talk about what. You know who's going to be a little bit more quiet and sit back, and you know who's going to be out there and loud and driving the conversation. You also know that the cardinal rule of polite conversation will be broken. You don't talk about religion, and you don't talk about politics. And you know that that one uncle is coming, and he's going to break that rule. If you're, if you're kind of nervously laughing, you might be that uncle. <laughs> but you know, this is going to happen. That The cardinal rule of good conversation, the cardinal rule of polite conversation is going to break. Now, in my family, I've got, the ship has sailed on the whole no talking about church because you got a priest as a cousin, you're kind of in trouble, right? But I've always, I've always wondered about that. Ever since I've heard that, that statement, in polite conversation, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics. I've kind of wondered, why is religion in that, in that realm? I've, kind of, I've asked myself that question before. Why is it that in polite, in, in mixed company, in polite company, you don't talk about religion? It's kind of a taboo subject sometimes. Is it because uh, the, the, the cousin, who, the 18-year-old cousin who just went off to college for a semester, got the whole world figured out and wants to come back and fight? I don't think so. Is it because of, the, of the, the brother or the sister of the family that, that may not go to church anymore? I don't think that's it either. There was a, uh, there's a quote that has made its rounds before, uh, and it kind of flares up every now and then. It says, uh, it's by Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi was, is, this, is this huge historical figure in the 1900s, uh, big activist. He was a Hindu man in, in India. 
a philosopher, an activist, and he, he, he kind of rose to just a popularity in the, in the country. And he once was asked about Christianity. And he said, it's interesting. I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Because your Christians are nothing like your Christ. Say that again. I like your Christ. I don't care for your Christians. Because your Christians are nothing like your Christ. I think that's part of the reason why in polite company, we don't talk about, Christ, we don't talk about our faith. We don't talk about religion. Because so often, we don't live up to the bar of Christianity. So often, we kind of fall short in that. So often, our existence, our life here, is not authentically Christian. It's scandalously Christian. So the question for us today, am I living a life as a Christian, that's scandalous or authentic. Today we, we celebrate Christ the King. And in our readings, we have two, in our first reading and in our Gospel, we have two figures who we see as kings. And I would have to say that one falls into one category and one falls into the other. That over the course of, the, over the course of their story, we hear about a scandalously a scandalous king and an authentic king. The difference in them is that one remains focused on the kingdom of heaven, the true kingdom, the lasting kingdom, the kingdom that goes way beyond this world and into the next. And the other, his gaze falls at one point and starts to pay attention to the kingdom of this world. Our first reading is about King David. For the Jews, King David was the quintessential king, the top guy. Like, he is the standard by which all kings of Israel are supposed to be. If we look at David's story, from the moment that he was first called to be a king, he was chosen by God's prophet. He was the youngest, brother of, he was the youngest of 12 brothers. He was out working in the fields whenever the prophet came. He was busy with life. He was doing his thing. He was doing what God asked him to do. And when he gets called... He gets lifted up, the unlikely, the humble, the one that's not supposed to be chosen, gets called to be the king of Israel. Fast forward in his life a little bit, we know that David, with a sling, has really, really good aim. And he takes out the giant Goliath. Over the course of the next few years, he grows in popularity, he grows in power. People start to say, we don't want Saul, the king that we had, we want David to be our king, we want you to rule, we want to put you on the throne. And they do. And he rules well. Today we hear about him being anointed king, which is a beautiful thing. But David, the problem is, is that for most of his life, he focuses on the kingdom of heaven, but at one point, his gaze onto the kingdom of heaven falls. And he starts looking at the kingdom of the world. Finds himself in power, with a lot of comfort, a lot of people that will go out and fight the battles for him so he can kind of just sit back and rest on his laurels. 
He ends up seeing Bathsheba taking a bath. He ends up having an affair. He ends up having a child and having her husband killed. This whole thing goes on because David's gaze fell from the kingdom of heaven to the kingdoms of this world. For us, I think sometimes what happens is we, we go through the different seasons of the church, we go through the different moments in the church, we go through different moments in life, whether it be marriage or big sacraments, whether it be for our kids raising them, whether it be the beginning of school where it's really exciting and we're going to commit to going back to church, or at New Year's, or at Lent, or all these different times where we're focused, we want to make God another focus in our life. But sometimes in that focus, our gaze drops. And the kingdoms of the world start to be a little bit more important than the kingdom of heaven. And we start to live a scandalously Christian life. It's okay, because Jesus is there. right? Jesus is inviting us back. Jesus comes at Christmas, Jesus comes to earth, Jesus takes on human nature, He becomes one of us to show us the way to live an authentically Christian life. He shows us the way to show, like, how to live to inherit the kingdom of heaven. How to live in a way that's going to be completely different. That, and show us an example of a gaze not falling off the kingdom of heaven and ignoring the kingdoms of the world. And it sounds amazing and it sounds awesome until we hear about the way that that actually looks in today's gospel. Today in the gospel, we hear about Jesus' passion. Why on Christ the King Sunday would we hear about Jesus' passion? That's the moment where he was weakest. That's the moment where he was ridiculed the most. That's the moment where he was embarrassed. That's the moment where he was beaten and bruised and died. Why on earth would that be the image of our king? Because a true king doesn't rule from on high. A true king doesn't rule from on high, rest on his laurels, sit back and let someone else fight the battle. A true king is out on the front lines. A true king is willing to sacrifice for the sake of his people. A true king is willing to lay his life down on behalf of somebody else. He leads the charge. He doesn't, de he doesn't demand the charge. In our world, when our, when our gaze falls, we want comfort. <laughs> you go fight. We may want pleasure. We, we may want whatever it is, power, status, whatever it is. Look, someone else can give me those things, but I don't have to do anything to earn it. Jesus shows us that's not how this goes. On the cross, Jesus is embarrassed. He's ridiculed. And he does this because he wants to associate with our life. As a good king, as a loving king, he wants to be in the mud and the muck of our life and associate with us even more closely. Because I got a feeling that with us in this room, at some point, we've been embarrassed. At some point, we've been embarrassed about something with our faith. Absolutely. Well, Jesus knows that. Crucifixion was meant to be something that made you less than human, was the most embarrassing in public way that you could die. Jesus takes that on. 
I got a feeling at some point we've been ridiculed. At some point we've been ridiculed. At some point we've been ridiculed for the faith that we have, for the life that we live, for the way in which we proclaim the word that may have caused us hesitation. Today we hear Jesus constantly ridiculed from the crowd as he's hanging on the cross, suffering. You saved yourself, come on. If you're the Son of God, can't you do this? Finds himself accused. I got a feeling at some point in our life we found ourselves accused. Look, I know who you really are. <laughs> you, may you may go to church on Sunday, but I know you on Monday and on Tuesday and every other day of the week. I know your past, so don't get all preachy with me. Jesus finds himself accused. Think of the criminal <laughs> looking at him. Didn't you say you could do this? Accusing him of not caring. Accusing him of being a liar. You see, right now, we find ourselves on the brink of our society really picking up, right? Really running. Next week, when we come to Mass, we start off another part, another big piece of the Christian experience. That's Advent. We start, to, we, start to proclaim, we start to prepare ourselves interiorly for the coming of Christ at Christmas. We give ourselves four weeks to prepare for the coming of Christ at Christmas. We prepare for the king coming. Not a king that's going to rule on high and sit in a palace and rest, sit back. But we prepare ourselves for a baby who's going to come in a manger. <laughs> Again, flipping the mystery on its head. How are we going to prepare? Like if our, if our life has not been living in authentic Christianity, that's okay. If we've lived a little bit scandalous, where our gaze has been focused more on this world than on the next, that's okay. As long as we don't leave ourselves there. Advent is a time of us being able to redirect our gaze back to heaven. Being able to look back to our Father. Being able to come back and prepare ourselves to receive a Christ child, the Messiah, the King of the universe, as the form of a baby at Christmas. So we come to, we, when we come to Mass, for example, we come to see God face to face, basically to get a foreshadowing of, of our heavenly reality. We get to receive God the same way we'll receive Him at Christmas, the same way we'll receive Him in our heavenly kingdom as our reward. We also come during Advent. It's the perfect time for us to be able to prepare ourselves interiorly. To come to confession. To receive the forgiveness that God has for all of us. Basically to echo the words of the second criminal that was crucified with Christ. Have mercy on me, say, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. You know that second criminal. They've they, they've come to realize they uh they got his name, and he's actually lifted up as a saint in the Catholic Church. It was the first first deathbed confession of sorts. That he looked at his Savior and he said, "Lord, forgive me, a sinner." 
And Jesus saying, yes, you'll see me in paradise, is basically him saying, you're with me. You're with me in heaven. You will receive your heavenly reward. That's what God calls all of us to do at some point during this Advent season. It's to open ourselves up to His mercy. To be brought back into good graces with Him. To redirect our gaze to the, the heavenly reward that we have. To His heavenly kingdom. To pass of the things of the world that are passing. That will be gone. And look to Him. You know, it might not be polite to, sp- to speak about religion and politics at something like a Thanksgiving meal. But it'd be a whole lot easier if we live in a Christianity that's not scandalous, but that's authentic. Let our, let our day to day, let our day here at this, this Feast of Christ the King redirect our gaze for the time being, but let the Advent season settle us where we're constantly looking at and constantly reaching out and constantly desiring more relationship with that King. Today we come in a powerful way, just like St. Dismas. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, that we may be refocused on our heavenly kingdom.